Unlike physicians and attorneys who tend to specialize, we pastors do it all. Not because we're vain or delusional, although most of us dip into that behavior now and then, but it's the nature of the work. We don't choose what to do so much as what to do comes to us. But when the task at hand has been dealt with, we cherish those times when we can choose where to focus in ministry, where we can gravitate to what we do best or what we enjoy most, hoping that they're one and the same. For some pastors, that means digging deep into Scripture to better teach or to preach God's Word. For another, it might be social justice, living out Christ's command to love one another, reaching out to those who've been marginalized or overlooked as Jesus did in his ministry. The list is long. Pastoral care, teaching, preaching, visioning, leading a congregation into a new building project or a new area of ministry, or spiritual direction, walking with people as they discern how and what God is calling them to do. But what I, will, I suspect you will never hear a pastor say is, prayer is where it's at for me. I really excel at praying. I have a close and intimate relationship with our Lord. Most of us, pastors and congregation members alike, feel our prayer life isn't really quite up to snuff. It's not what it ought to be. And we imagine other people's prayer life is much richer and deeper than our own. Actually, we don't imagine it so much as we're pretty confident of it. We don't measure up in the prayer department. Ours is a scientific world in which, in which much can be explained or analyzed. Prayer seems to come from a more ancient and mystical time. The church has long used candles and incense for many reasons. Initially, the candles were to provide light, and pardon me for saying so, but the incense was to reduce the stench of unwashed people <laughs> and animals. But they're also a sign of the mystery of the kingdom of God. For as smoke from the candles dissipates into the air, or the odor and smoke from the incense dissipates, they pass from the world we can see and smell into the world we cannot see and smell. They mark the worship as a place where our lives meet God's promises, where the mystical meets the world we live in. In our lesson this morning, one of the disciples says, Lord, teach us to pray. Jesus teaches them what we have come to call the Lord's Prayer in both Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. He assures them, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. If we don't think we measure up in the prayer department, this confirms it, for we have asked and gone wanting. We have searched without finding. We have sat at the bedside and prayed for healing that did not come. I'd like to be able to explain the mystery of unanswered prayers for you, as well as for myself, but I cannot. What I know about unanswered prayers is from Garth Brooks' song by that same name, where he 
writes a song about his high school girlfriend after running into her 20 years later, saying, thank you, God, for unanswered prayers. I suspect his girlfriend may have felt the same way. It's bold to say, but perhaps part of the problem with prayer is that Jesus' words about asking and receiving seem to imply that as we request, God will deliver, as if we were in charge of the universe. We know that isn't true, and we know that things aren't that simple, but we're disappointed nonetheless. When relief doesn't come, healing doesn't happen, or we remain confused and in despair. Perhaps part of the problem is our thinking about prayer as a task set before us, rather than as an invitation into the kingdom of God, an opportunity to invite God to walk alongside us as our spiritual director, as we discern what God would have us do. Perhaps prayer is much about listening as asking, about being changed as it is about changing things. Prayer is, in fact, I think, dangerous because the thing that prayer most often changes is we ourselves, the prayer. Prayer is good when our prayers are answered with a new awareness of the presence of God or a sense of peace even as we sit at the bedside of a dying family member. We can be grounded and centered in God's promises through prayer. And prayer is wonderful when it turns us from despair to trust or from doubt to faith. I have to warn you, though, that the prayer Jesus taught is a bit of a minefield. Undoubtedly, you noticed it sometime on your life's journey, on your faith journey. And perhaps you, like me, even worried about it, right there in the middle. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We don't have a problem with Jesus' ability to forgive sins, to make a dramatic difference in the lives of those he touched. That's what God does. It's the heart of the gospel. It's a promise of holy baptism and holy communion that we are forgiven. I think the place we have problem with this business of forgiveness is in believing that it really does have power to make difference in my life with my problem with my shame, with my sin. We believe in forgiveness in the abstract, but when it comes to our sin, our guilt, or our shame, it's often a different story. I recall preaching a sermon at the penitentiary saying, I'm not afraid to die, and I'm not. <laughs> but then I said, until I get something caught in my throat. <laughs> and then it's a different story. It moves from the abstract to the real. And many of us have left worship with our anger or guilt intact, either the burden of our own sin or the deep or long-standing pain caused by one who hurt us deeply. There are times in our life when our pain is so great that we can't let go of our anger, our guilt, our hurt, or our shame, either the pain of our own sin or the sin of one who hurt us deeply. This is where Jesus is inviting us to let go of long-standing or perhaps even well-deserved resentment. Forgiveness is a wonderful gift, 
But Jesus also asks us to do a difficult thing, to forgive those who have hurt us most deeply. Yet forgiveness's power to heal and change our life is perhaps most powerful here, where God's promises meet our pain. The real promise of forgiveness to bring hope and healing may not be so much as when we're forgiven as when we forgive. And much of the time, most of the time, even we'd be able to do that if the person who hurt us would only repent or apologize or at least acknowledge the hurt that they've caused. I have the sad responsibility of telling you this is not what Jesus is asking us to do. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus said, the father runs to the son while he is yet far off. And St. Paul writes, God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For Jesus, forgiveness always came first. It was forgiveness that opened the door to healing and to hope. It wasn't a conclusion to the process, but its beginning. To the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, has no one condemned you? Neither do I. And only then did he say, go and sin no more. He didn't say to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, if you promise not to cheat anybody else, I'll have lunch with you. No. He said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. With Jesus, it was always grace first, forgiveness first, because forgiveness begins the healing process. And Jesus has instructed and inviting us to forgive those who've hurt us most deeply. I'm not naive, and I know that sometimes, perhaps even often, we're unable to forgive, let alone love, those who've hurt us so deeply. I can only say that forgiveness is a process, not simply a decision or a proclamation. And sometimes it takes us months or years or even a lifetime to live into the forgiveness God is calling us to give. When Jesus asks us to forgive those who have sinned against us, it isn't yet another demand to do something we don't want to do or that we feel incapable of and that they don't deserve. And it isn't one more reason to feel guilty because we failed in our faith yet again. Forgiveness isn't a demand but a gift a means of unlocking the rich, full life that Christ wants for us. Forgiveness is the only option which frees us from the anger, the bitterness, and the pain of undeserved suffering. We can't exact enough vengeance to take, our way, to take away our pain. Only forgiveness can do that. I think it was the writer Anne Lamott who said the only cure for undeserved suffering is forgiveness, whether it's forgiving ourselves or the one who hurt us so deeply. Our failure to move towards forgiveness keeps the pain fresh, the anger hot, and the hurt alive. Well, I'm not certain if Anne Lamont wrote the only cure for undeserved suffering is forgiveness. I can recall clearly that in her book, Traveling Mercy, she writes, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. It's a gruesome image, 
and most of us know, an accurate one. For we've laid awake in bed full of anger and rage. Well, the one that we were angry with slept soundly, perhaps right beside us. Only forgiveness can heal us from the pain of the past. Know that God has forgiven you from your deepest sin, your secret shame, your guilt and regret. God's Spirit is at work in your life, bringing healing and hope. Let the power of God's forgiveness begin to heal your brokenness. It is among the best of God's blessings, the mystery and the miracle of forgiveness, bringing hope and drawing us ever closer to the heart of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Amen.